Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be together to continue to worship. We've had a good Sunday school lesson and we have much to learn from already. Seek an interest in your prayers today. The message that we have came to here in the book of Romans now is very pertinent. It gives us, some would say, five or seven steps down. Uh, you could simplify it and make it three, but I believe we are living in the early stages of the third and final step downward into depravity in the United States of America. Satan doesn't like us to address this subject, and neither does the culture around us. But the Scripture is true, and it's just amazing. It's like we're living in a, we're in a living laboratory, and we see the Romans chapter 1 coming to fruition before our very eyes. So I invite you to turn to Romans 1, and we will consider together today verses 18 through 32, Romans 1, 18 through 32. At the minister's study week in July, Mid-Atlantic Conference held at the Brian Bible Conference grounds, or the uh, United Zion Camp Grove campgrounds, Brother Merle Burkholder spoke. Uh, he's from Sioux Lookout, served many places in the world. And he really encouraged the younger ones. I'm not sure. I hope I still fit in that category. He really encouraged the younger ones. His glass is always half full, it seems like, when he looks at it, not half empty. Well, the great opportunity that we have in the age in which we live, you know, if we have a good marriage and a good relationship with our children, an intact home, that alone is a tremendous light in the world we live in because that's becoming less and less in society around us. And just to simply live out the principles of God's Word is becoming a greater and greater light as the world around us becomes darker and darker. So in the first half of Romans 1, verses 1 through 17, we considered God's plan for us in walking and living with Him. And we looked at the call, which was verse 1, where God had called Paul. It's just the same as He calls each of us in these kingdom to serve Him as we respond. The cause, which was Jesus Christ. The communion, which was a relationship between Paul and those that he ministered to. And then the constraint, which is the love of Christ that compels us. And he said, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians. He said, I'm in debt to everyone I meet to share with them this message of the gospel. I'm ready to preach wherever I'm at, and I'm not ashamed of the message. And I challenge us today, we cannot be ashamed of the pure, true message of the Word of God in our society. Because there's a lot of pushback against the truth of God's Word that we're going to look at this morning. And then we concluded there in verse 17 with, there's a faith, there's, there is there, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's a faith that grows. It's a faith where we go step by step by step. And as we walk with God, as He reveals His will to us, we take that step of faith, and He reveals the next, and we take another step of faith. And we live by faith in God. We rest in Him. We trust in Him. And we are called to live that way. But now the second half of this chapter shows us that there's a result 
that comes from rejecting that way of life. So the Spirit through the pen of Paul has shown us the how and why of living in the first 17 verses, and now verses 18 through 32 shows us the result of rejecting God's plan and rejecting God's call on our lives. And I, I encourage us to remember this as we work our way through the book of Romans. This is a letter, and it's a long letter. Can you imagine getting a letter this long and reading it and needing to digest it? Uh, but it's a, it was a long letter, and it didn't come with chapter breaks and verses. You know, often we want to pull out chapter 7 and wrestle with that. Is it figurative or literally or literal? And then we go to chapter 9, and we wrestle with that about God's election. And we go to chapter 11, and we wrestle some with that one. But as I study, I see it coming together. It's, it's one message. It's one letter. And this morning's message, I believe, sheds light on chapters 7 and 9 and 11 and some of the others that there's some controversy about. So in Romans, we see the universal corruption of the fallen state of mankind. Jew and Gentile, both are like. Paul puts us together. He says, you know, just because... Uh, that the Jews were the children of Abraham, that alone was not uh, a merit to bring their salvation. But it gave them a great opportunity and a great responsibility. Then he challenges the Gentiles, whether they, get, whether they get too confident in their relationship with God. He said, if God did not spare the natural branches, well, he, he will also not spare the, the grafted branches and grafted branches if they... Uh, choose to reject God's ways for their lives. So, before I read this chapter this morning, I want to tell you a story. And as we go through this discourse, the story will make sense to you. So, if you handle another dog story, here it goes. A number of years ago, a family were out on a Sunday evening drive and stopped in our farm for a visit. And we all went out and gathered around the Jeep that they were riding in and visited with them, and about six or seven Labrador Retrievers also went out and gathered around the Jeep. But within that Jeep was a little dog named Stella, and she's about the size of a small loaf of bread. And she was bound and determined to climb out of that Jeep, and she just snarled and growled and pulled and jerked on her owners. But Stella's salvation was in this. She did not have free will. Her owners restrained her. Had she been given over to free will, it would have been a short, well, her life would have just been a lot shorter, I'll put it that way. Now, she may have inflicted a few good licks on the ankles, but she didn't understand that those, uh, those harmless, drooling, tail-wagging, buffoony-looking labs in a pack can become ruthless killers. Uh, there was a summer that they went out in the mornings and came home in the evenings regularly with groundhogs until I haven't seen a live groundhog on the farm for a long time. And then there's a few squirrels that got a little too far from the tree that met the same fate, and some, some other uh, animals that we won't talk about that met that fate. And uh, unfortunately, some of the neighbors free-range chickens also. That was an expensive experiment. But. So Stella didn't understand that she thought she could get out there and run with the big dogs for a while, and then everything would be fine. And we think we can run with Satan for a while, everything's going to be fine. This morning will show us why that will not work. All right. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to read from the Amplified. So you're welcome to follow along in your Bible if you'd like, or you can just listen in. Takes a while to find things in these four translation Bibles. All right, Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. For God's holy wrath and indignation are revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness repress and hinder the truth and make it inappropriate. For that which is known about God is evident to them and made plain to their inner consciences because God himself has shown it to them. For ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature and attributes, that is, his eternal power and divinity, have been made intelligible and clearly discernible in and through the things that have been made his handiwork, so men are without excuse, altogether without defense or justification. Because when they knew and recognized him as God, they did not honor and glorify him as God or gave him thanks. But instead they became futile and godless in their thinking, and with vain imaginations and foolish reasonings and stupid speculations, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be smart, they became simpletons. They made simpletons of themselves. And by them the glory and majesty and excellence of the immortal God were exchanged for and represented by images resembling mortal man and birds and beasts and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their own hearts, to sexual impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies and among themselves, and abandoning them to the degrading power of sin, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So be it. For this reason, God gave them over and abandoned them to vile affections and degrading passions, for their women exchanged their natural function for the unnatural and abnormal one, and the men also turned from the natural relations with the women and were set ablaze, burning out, and consumed with lust for other men, committing shameful acts with men, and suffering in their own bodies and personalities the inconsequences and penalty for their wrongdoing and going astray, which was their fitting retribution." And so, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God or approve of Him or consider Him worth knowing, God gave them over, it's the third time we find that term, God gave them over to base and condemn mind to do things not proper or decent but loathsome, until they were filled with permeated and saturated with every kind of unrighteousness, iniquity, gasp, grasping and covetous greed and malice. They were full of envy and jealousy, murder, strife, deceit, and treachery, ill will, and cruel ways. They were secret backbiters and gossipers, slanders, hateful and hating God, full of insolence and arrogance, and boasting, and inventors of new forms of evil, disobedient, and undutiful to parents. They were without understanding, conscienceless, faithless, heartless, loveless, and merciless." Though they are fully aware of God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, 
they not only do them themselves, but approve and applaud others who practice them. Does that sound anything like the world that we're living in today? So we see that God in these verses shows us His righteous displeasure, the reason for His displeasure, and the result of His withdrawal of protection from those who pursue that lifestyle. So we start here with verse 18, and it says, The displeasure of God's righteousness, said His wrath, it's, it's literally the displeasure of His righteous nature is being revealed against all who choose to reject the truth of who He is and the expression of Himself through creation and caring for us in many other ways. So it says here in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what does the term hold the truth in unrighteousness mean? It means that they are suppressing the truth. One person made this illustration of attempting to put truth in a box and set on the lid and hold it in. So in their wickedness, they are attempting to suppress the truth of God, to keep it from being reality. And we know how foolish that would be. God, the creator of everything, and to try to suppress the reality of His righteousness, of creation, of His holiness, of His protection in our lives, and everything that goes with us, and the, the, the moral code that He has uh, instigated for man to live under, to repress, hinder, and to deny that. And then verse 19 says, For it is plain to them, because they which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. So God has clearly revealed Himself to all mankind, and the Scripture says to us in verse 20 how that He has done that. For the invisible things of Him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things of eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So what this verse is telling us, that through the, the marvelous wonders of creation, there is evidence of a God, of a Creator. And by the way, uh, Weston, if you don't mind, at the end of the service, could we sing How Great They Are? I think it's 416 in Zion's Praises. Uh, it says, because that they are rejecting that truth, and because of God's magnificent representation of Himself through creation, that we are without excuse. When Columbus and other explorers came to America and met the Indians, the Indians talked about the Great Spirit. Even in their limited knowledge of God, they understood that there was a divine being. And all people do that. Uh, have some inner conscience, consciousness of a divine being, of a creator. I guess I'm like the one man, he said he doesn't have enough faith to be an atheist. Uh, I think it would take a lot more, a lot greater imagination to uh, think that evolution is true than it is to simply put your faith in the God of creation. So we are without excuse to say there is not a God if the only thing we had was the proof around us of creation. Spent a lot of time in the cornfields this summer and a simple plant of corn just continues to amaze me. You start out with this little seed, and then it grows, and then the leaves come out. 
and then it does what we call canopy over. And if you ever noticed in dry weather, you can get a half inch of rain in a field of corn that is canopied over where, the, where it's tall enough that you look down from the top, you can't see the earth. And a lot of times, right in the middle between the two 30-inch rows, the ground will stay dry even with a half inch of rain. You say, why is that? Well, those leaves reach up like this. They're like upside-down umbrellas, and they catch the water. They pour it in. It fills this leaf. It runs down fills this leaf. It goes all the way to the bottom. I've been watching this. As the irrigation gun goes around, I'll step back, and then I'll step in and watch it run down the corn stalk. It goes all the way to the bottom, and then at the bottom, it's got these little feeder roots that go out in a circle, and that water will get on those roots, and it'll run out, and it'll form a little puddle about this big around the bottom of the stalk of corn. And then that same stalk of corn has the tassel that comes out on the top, which is the male part, and has the silk that comes out on the ear, and each one of those little small fibers of silk is attached to where a kernel will be, and there's a little bit of pollen from the top of the corn that goes down and touches that little bit of silk, and it forms a kernel. And that's just one minute little part of God's creation. I'm so fascinated by all of it God has done. And it says we are without excuse if we can just observe those things to say that we do not believe that there is a God. Now we notice verse 21. What happens when we choose not to glorify that God of creation? Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And here we see the first step downward. We're the first step away from God. First of all, they did not glorify God. When they were given evidence of who God is, they chose not to bring glory to God. Why did God have a creation? We'll get to that a bit later. There's a number of verses about why God created the world. And then humanity, or human beings, man and woman, He created in His likeness and in His image to be a mere reflection of Him and to glorify Him and to worship Him and to dwell in relationship with Him. We must glorify God. We are called, we are bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, We are brought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God desires from us worship and honor and relationship in our spirit and in our body. And then he calls us to be thankful. And above all things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God ruin your hearts, to which you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in wisdom and in teaching, and admonish you one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And we read those verses. There's many verses in the New Testament about being grateful and about uh, honoring God. But as we look at it in the context of this chapter we're looking at this morning, we understand they aren't just good suggestions. They are imperative if we're going to walk in spiritual victory with God. And then when we choose not to glorify God, we choose not to be thankful people, we begin 
That is the first step of beginning the downward spiral that ends up in a depraved or a reprobate mind, as the King James says. And notice where it starts. It says, they were neither thankful but became vain in their imaginations, but their thinking became futile. In other words, their, their thought processes were of no value. It was futile, futility, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We'll come back to the heart again at the end of the chapter. But it, there's a beginning of a darkening or a closing up or a sealing off of the heart, the mind, and the, the understanding. The idea here of, of a heart being darkened carries the idea of foolish in thought, and it says this in one of the commentaries where it broke down the, the Greek words, it leads to debates, disputes, vain imaginations, and wrong reasoning. Think about how serious it is. To choose not to glorify God and not to be thankful starts us on that road of moving away from God. And then the hearts and minds become dark, and they do not comprehend truth. Ephesians says this, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the dark understanding darkened. Now here's the same concept again. Had their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past filling have given themselves over into lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's after the third step of the downward spiral that we'll get to towards the end of the chapter. And in verse 22, it says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. In other words, as they thought they grew in knowledge, apart from the just in our Sunday school lesson this morning. So if we're attempting to, to gain knowledge apart from the wisdom of God, we go down this road of foolishness. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds, animals, and reptiles. Have you seen that in our society today? They are attempting to replace worship of God with the worship of the creatures that He has created. If you work in animal husbandry, animal agriculture, you know that the regulations for the humane treatment of animals is increasing more and more and more, while the need for treating human beings with dignity is decreasing. Those who are created in the image of God, the focus is decreasing on them being treated with dignity, the unborn, the elderly, etc. But at the same time, those people who are promoting that lifestyle are very adamant about the ethical and humane treatment of animals. It's exactly how God allows it to work in reality. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made into corruptible man in birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So we see that happening in our world today. It's happened wherever this has taken place. And this verse should strike terror in the heart of everyone who is in the process of rejecting God's call on their lives. Do we see how important it is 
that mankind accepts the fact that God is creator and sustainer of the universe. And we should bow before him in reverence and worship, not worshiping the, create, the creature, but worshiping the God of creation. Verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. In Revelation 4.11, we find this verse. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, for thy pleasure they are and were created. So we go all the way back to the last book of the Bible. And there, in heaven, the beings are falling before the throne, and they're saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So even in, the, in heaven, there's the great focus on God the Creator and the reason for His creation and the pleasure that should be drawn and given to God from that. To reject the fact of creation is a serious offense to God that brings serious consequences. And now we come to verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And this is the first of the three gave them ups that we find here in this portion of Scripture. So what does it mean to give up? He withdrew the protection of His grace, is what people who've studied this deeper than I have have concluded. When Satan came into the presence of God to debate with God about this man Job, who was living a righteous life, Satan said to God, Hast thou not set a hedge of protection around Job? And God didn't deny that. God allowed Satan to poke through that hedge at certain places and to test Job. But the Scripture says here that when we reject God, he begins a process of withdrawing from us the protective nature that surrounds us from God. He begins to withdraw that, and he continues to withdraw it as we continue to go away from God. So it's kind of like this. Let's come back to the little illustration. Let's suppose that the little five-pound doggie's owners would have just tossed her out of the Jeep in amongst the big dogs and drove off and left her there. It probably would have not have been a good situation for the little dog. This is what the Scripture is showing us by illustration that God will do if we reject His work and His call in our lives. Does God want to abandon us to the wiles of the devil? No, absolutely not. He desires our friendship. He desires our worship. He desires our gratitude. But He gives us up for a purpose. He gives us up with a desire that the deep bondage of sin will cause us to cry out to Him for deliverance. The children of Israel were given over to the nations around them when they rejected God. It was a cycle. They would cry out to God. God would rescue them. They'd come back. Things start going good. They'd reject God. God would let them. God would withdraw His protection from them. The nations around them would come in, invade them, take them off in captivity. They'd live in bondage. Finally, they'd come to the end of themselves. They'd cry out to God. He'd bring them back, and the cycle would start again. We're just in a New Testament 
expression of the same scenario. So the only relief from sin is found in God's provision for sin, and that is Jesus Christ. Let's think a bit together about the prodigal son. The prodigal son came and he said, Father, give me my inheritance. Demanding, looking out for himself, he wanted to do his own thing. The Father God let him do it. The Father God let him go. He let him follow the desires that he was pursuing. No doubt it broke the father's heart to see his son going out and going down that road. But the wise father in that parable allowed his son to go and experience the full effects of sin because he knew that the only way to cure the love for sin is to experience its full effects. And I'll say that again. The only way to cure the love for sin is to allow a person who loves sin to experience its effects. And the effects are terrible. Probably kind of like the groundhog who gets between all these dogs and torn to shreds. Satan is a cruel master. Do you know that there are times when God calls the church to join him in turning people over in that way? Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 7. Here's a church that was not only tolerating sin, they were somewhat boasting about it, it seems. And Paul writes to them, said, it, is reported, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not much as named, not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. You are puffed up. Have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you? For verily, as absent in body, but already, as though I did present, I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together, and my spirit is with you in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, now notice verse 5, deliver such a one unto Satan that the destruction of the flesh, for the destruction of flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your glory has got good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Let's go to 1 Timothy 1.20. 1 Timothy 1.20. Let's back up to verse 18. This charge I commit thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some have put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. So he's saying there are some people who have turned away from the faith, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, of whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul is giving instruction here in 1 Corinthians 5 on how to deal with this person who's living in outright, blatant, immoral sin and seems to be proud of it. And he gives another uh, sort of closing discourse here to Timothy in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy and said, Here are two men that I have personally delivered unto Satan that they will learn not to sin. And I understand in our, in our flesh and the compassion of our hearts, that's the last thing we want to do. That's hard to put somebody out and say, well, if you're going to choose a life of sin, 
you're going to have to experience its full effects with the hope that they'll be like the prodigal son, come to themselves and say, in my father's house is where I need to be and come back. You see, the prodigal son left with his focus on himself and what he wanted to do. The prodigal son came home and said, I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me a servant. And that's really the only place where we can fully experience the blessing of God in our lives when we say, Father, I'm not worthy of the salvation you give me. Let me be your servant. So excommunication is a godly act of love for the person and their soul. Verse 25 of Romans. Back again. Romans 1. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the Creator more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So it's just repeating what we've already looked at. God gave them over because they changed the truth of God into a lie. And now we come to verse 26, which is the second giving up. For this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one towards another, men with wind, working that which is unseeming, and receiving themselves that recompense of their error which was meat, or which was the, the predicted result, the predicted outcome for what they did. It was just what was to be expected. So we notice here in verse 25 that, or verse 26 through 28, or verse 26 and 27, that God again gave them up. It's like the second, the second layer of protection that God is pulling back from their lives. The first abandonment resulted in unbridled sin with the opposite gender. So men and women were going out and living in, in, in unbridled sin with each other. But you see, sin never satisfies. And what little satisfaction may come from sin is always a diminishing return. So whatever sin we're participating in, whatever thrill came from it the first time, it's slightly less the second time the third time. So that's why that when people choose a life of sin and debauchery, it becomes more and more depraved as the time goes on because there's this desire just to go deeper and deeper to try to get the thrill that experienced the first time. It's the same with alcohol or drugs or, or whatever. It's this diminishing returns which causes a deeper and deeper drive to try to pursue the sin, and we go further and further down. So then when they become so debased in this opposite gender sin, then God gives them over to same-gender attraction, and that's sin. And that's very true. If you listen to or read testimonies of men who are, or women who are in the same-gender type of sin, they generally didn't start there, but they pursued a life of sin to where there was just so empty and so little fulfillment that they moved to same-gender type of, of immorality with each other. And God pulls that protection back, and He allows that to happen. And we see that in verses 26 and 27. And in verse 28, we come to the third uh, abandonment from God. And as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So here God has just pulled back the, the final layer of protection. 
and gave them up or, or surrendered them completely into that type of, of sin. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, it says that we are, we are to put on the whole armor of God because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against evil in high places. There's a spiritual warfare that's going on, and the only way for us to survive that warfare is to be on God's side or to have God's presence or God's protection in our lives. And for those of us who are born again, the, the presence of the Spirit in our lives. But when God pulls that back and pulls that back and pulls that back because we choose to obstinately go against God and go against God, it keeps getting worse and worse until we come to the third abandonment. So God now surrenders the mind to Satan. Ephesians 5, 11 and 12 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame to even speak of those things which is done of them in secret. So that mind is now reprobate and totally depraved. The filling of depravity is coming to completion. Verses 29 through 31. Being filled with all unrighteousness and fornication and wickedness. Just look at this list. Covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, and whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, and unmerciful. The lifestyle, you notice that the, the anger and the resentment and the hatred towards those who speak out against this kind of life and this kind of depravity. Um, it's there because of the emptiness and the, the, the lack of God in, in the life. There's just a, a hatred that comes out towards those who speak out and try to reach out and, and draw them away. So I've said this in Sunday school. I'll say it here. Many of the in that situation of life have reached that point, I believe, have some knowledge that how far they are from God. And we certainly don't want to condone that lifestyle, but probably the thing they need to hear more than anything else is God still loves you. There's a father at home. The prodigal's father is still at home, and he'll welcome you back. He's letting you where you're at so you'll get your fill of sin. But when you turn to him and cry out for help, the God who lets you go will be there to take you back. And now we come to the last verse. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. You see, the heart of the issue is self-love. And the end of self-love is depravity. But the answer is coming back to God. And I don't mean to sound hardened, but what we're seeing in society around us today is the predictable result of the path that humanity has taken recently. It's a predictable result. It happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened during the time of the judges. Remember that story in Judges where 
some man was traveling and he went to this Benjamite town and they molested this girl until she died and he cut her up and spread her all around and people went in and almost annihilated the tribe of Benjamin. It happened during a time when people were, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. There was no moral code, there was no moral law. That's what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what's happening in a world that we live in today. The path to depravity doesn't change. The end results doesn't change. It continues on. Done a little bit of study. Darwin's theory of evolution was emphasized in the late 1800s. It made its way into the classroom in the 1900s. It's come to fruition in the 2000s. Do you wonder why we're experiencing what we're experiencing in the world around us today? It should not surprise us. God continues to withdraw his protection as people continue to resist and to deny his existence in society today. It will only get worse as we continue to live in a world that rejects God for who he is and what he has done and tries to plan and work another way around God. I picked out three steps in the downward spiral. Others who've studied it more than me have picked up and broke it down a little further, and I'll just read those. Number one, a failure to reverence and give gratitude to God. And I would challenge each of us, you know, we look at the, at the end result of depravity and we'd say, oh, we would never go there. But an old saying from my youth was, we need to nip it in the bud. If we're going to nip it in the bud, examine our hearts. Am I a thankful, grateful, worshiping, praising person to God? Do I see good in God all the time? The second is a darkening of the heart. When we lose the reverence and worship and praise for God, God allows us to begin to have a darkened heart, and that heart then cannot perceive truth. The third thing that happens then is the suppression of truth that we've talked about there when we, when we first opened this morning. The suppression of truth, trying to hold truth down or to deny truth and to say it isn't true, it isn't right. Uh, I'm just burdened as we, as we go through time and I keep hearing of more and more men who I thought were godly men they are actually living double lives. They've made it look really good on the outside. We're living sin. I just learned of another one this past week. The fourth one is God then begins to give us over to the lust of our heart. God will let us pursue those things that we insist on pursuing. He will. Because we have free will. We're not like Stella whose owners held her in the Jeep. God will let us get out. He'll let us experience it if we persist. The fifth thing that happens in God begins the process of giving us over, withdrawing his protection. The sixth thing that happens is our mind becomes depraved or reprobate. And the seventh thing that happens is we are filled with all unrighteousness, a complete filling of unrighteousness, just the presence of God, the goodness of God, everything is just pushed out of our lives, pushed out of our minds, pushed out of our hearts. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, all they, they knew the ordinance of God, and those who practice those things are worthy of death. They not only do them, but give approval of them who practice them. 
And like I said earlier, I believe we are in the early stages of the last step in society. We're in the stage where society is pushing hard. Even those who do not practice that lifestyle, they're pushing hard to get it to be the acceptable lifestyle, to get it acceptable. And the Scripture says there in Romans that we are no different. If we, I'll read this again on Amplified, Though they are fully aware of God's righteous degree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them themselves, but approve and applaud others who do them. God is not making a distinction here between those who practice and those who approve and applaud and promote. He's making it the same. Now, one more thing in closing. The challenge to me is that I begin to be studying further back into Romans. I begin studying chapter 2, and Paul goes straight from this discourse to saying, Therefore you have no excuse or defense or justification, O man, whoever judges or condemns another. And he spends a good portion of chapter 2 saying, Look in the mirror at your own life. Yeah, we can look at that and say, Oh, that's terrible, that's terrible. But then Paul follows that in chapter 2 and says, Look in the mirror of your own life. Examine your life before we pass judgment on the other, and make sure there aren't some of those things in our lives. Look at the list in verses 29, 30, and 31. Nathan Good often gives homework, so I'll give homework. Read chapter 2 and then look back and read verses 29, 30, and 31 and see, are any of those things starting to put down roots in my life? Am I maybe on a little bit of a slippery slope that I don't realize because I'm looking at the end of the depravity and say, well, I'm not there. So, brothers and sisters, I hardly know how to conclude this, but this is a world we live in, and churches left and right are being drawn in and giving approval to it. And we have to stand on the Word of God, not in a derogatory condemnation way, but telling people God loves you, and He's letting you go. He's letting you experience the, the terrible, painful life of depravity in hope that you'll open your heart and He can call you back. Go have a song.